2006, January 23rd, Lecture 13, Energy Generation and Transport in Stars. We'll begin in just a moment. And we will start today's lecture. All right. Now, I want to start this class where the subject is energy generation in stars. And I want to start with a little demonstration. I can't get the room completely dark, but it's dark enough, I need a little extra source of light. Now, what's going on here? Well, what I've got is I've got a source of energy. In this case, the source of energy is chemical energy. I'm breaking the bonds of paraffin long chain molecules, and I'm turning them into light. Yeah, the autofocus is getting confused by that. That light, that this is energy. Energy is being released in the form of chemical energy. Now, the energy isn't just being held in the candle flame. It's actually being transported out into the room. The most obvious way you can see that the energy is being transported, well, you can see the candle flame. It's carrying energy in the form of photons are radiating away out from the candle flame, tickling the molecules in your eyes, and you see a candle flame lighting up the room. This is an example of radiation of photons carrying energy. What's another way that the, that the candle carries off energy? Well, if I put my hand over the candle, not in the G. Gordon Liddy style, but a little bit high above, what I feel is I feel warm air rising off the candle flame. If any of you have ever seen those little Christmas time toys of angels running around that you like candles underneath, it's got a propeller on top, and pretty soon that propeller starts turning. Well, what's actually happening? Well, what's happening is this energy source is heating air. The air becomes buoyant and rises against the gravity of the Earth, carrying some of the energy away by bulk motions. I can actually feel the air pushing against me, and if I had a little whirly gig here, which I couldn't find one that passed the Christmas season, I couldn't go buy one this weekend, I tried then I could actually turn some of the energy liberated by this chemical reaction, this chemical burning going on, into mechanical energy. I've transported energy from the point of creation, where the chemical reactions, where the chemical oxidation is occurring, and I've transported it via convection, via bulk motions of hot, buoyant air, into making the little whirly gig move or feeling a little buffeting against my hand. I've transported energy away from the point of creation. There's yet a third way that I could transport energy away. I could take a needle or I could take a piece of metal and I could put it into the candle flame. And as I do that, the metal immediately inside the candle flame will get very, very hot. But as it gets hot, it will begin to heat the metal adjacent to it. That hot metal will heat the metal adjacent to it. And as each atom is shaken side to side, eventually that clip will get hot enough that I won't be able to hold it anymore. Just like holding a needle or a teaspoon in the flame of a candle, eventually will get too hot to handle. What's happening? Well, I say what's happening is that the heat is being transferred into the material, it's being conducted into the metal, and then it's being conducted down away from the flame heating point up to where my fingers burn my fingers, and I've conducted heat away from the point of, of creation and transported it, in this case, to the end of a needle. So I've got three ways to carry away energy from a point of generation. I can radiate it out as photons, you can all see. 
I can heat gases which rise against gravity and carry bulk energy, convection, or I can place a solid in contact with the energy source and transport heat by conducting it along the line and thereby removing energy from the source. And so today, the subject will be energy generation in stars. How do we actually generate energy inside stars, but that energy generation is going on in the deep interior? How do I then get it out to the surface? How do I transport it to actually then shine away as starlight? So the key ideas of today's lecture are as follows. Number one is I want to, first of all, revisit this topic that we talked about last Thursday of how stars generate their energy. The primary source of energy that is available is nuclear fusion in the core. We've already met the proton-proton chain. We'll meet one of the other ways in which stars have available to them a nuclear fusion cycle that converts four hydrogens into a helium nucleus and liberates energy through E equals mc squared, through the slight mass difference between the masses of protons and the mass of a helium nucleus. I'm also going to introduce the idea of the hydrostatic thermostat, why this thermonuclear reaction doesn't cause the star to explode like an immense cosmic hydrogen bomb. Now, once I've made the energy in the deep core, I have to transport it out to the surface. There are three means to transport that. There's nothing magical about these. We just saw them in the candle flame. We can either transport it using radiation, meaning photons carry the energy. I can have convection. The energy generation in the core can induce bulk motions in the envelope of the, of the star. Or I can actually conduct the heat away by passing it from atom to atom in a more or less solid material. Finally, we're going to see how the interplay between energy generation in the core and energy transport to the surface, where that energy is then brought to the surface, the photosphere, where it can be radiated starlight, sets up a situation in a star of thermal equilibrium, and how this is important because I've actually balanced energy generation against energy loss via transport. So today's lecture is going to talk about energy generation and energy transport. Now we've got a bunch of the pieces we already need to put stars together and today we're going to put the last of those pieces together and actually begin to in the next few days talk about how stars actually work. The physics we need to, to work on stars is as follows. I need the law of gravity because stars are big self-gravitating balls of gas held together by their, their incredible self-gravity. I need a way of describing how a gas responds to changes in pressure or density or temperature. That's called an equation of state. And for most stars, that's going to be the ideal gas law. The balance between gravity trying to cause a star to contract under its own weight, to basically collapse, and pressure trying to push the star out into the vacuum of space is called hydrostatic equilibrium. So that tells me how gas law and the law of gravity interact. So the first two are related to the third. Law of gravity and the equation of state interact by way of hydrostatic equilibrium. We also need a source of energy, which we talked about last time by talking about the question of what causes the sun to shine. And we're going to see that that source of energy will be primarily nuclear fusion. But there are other forms of energy that can come into play, as we'll see as this course progresses. Finally, we need the last piece, which we haven't talked about yet, but we've introduced. Namely, how do I get that energy from the point of origin in the core out to the surface where it can actually shine? I need a way to transport that energy to the surface. Now, remember that hydrostatic equilibrium is this balance between pressure and gravity inside of a star. If pressure dominates, if pressure gets bigger than gravity, the star will actually work to expand. 
If, on the other hand, the situation is such that gravity dominates, gravity will cause the star to begin to collapse. And what I would like to do is maintain a balance between those two inside the star. Now, the fact that gravity is pressing down on the inner layers of the star, as I go deeper and deeper within a star, I have the weight of all those layers above me pressing down upon me. That high compression leads to heating through the ideal gas law. And I set up inside of the star a very natural situation of a core envelope structure in which the interior of a star is very, very hot and very, very dense. Down in the center, it's called the compact core. And I have a larger, less dense, cooler region called the envelope that surrounds that core. Now, at this point, I've got no nuclear fusion going on. No nuclear fusion is required. The core envelope structure is simply a consequence of taking a self-gravitating ball of gas and setting it into a state of hydrostatic equilibrium. So it's a natural consequence of the interplay between gravity crushing inwards and the law of gas pressure pushing outwards. Now, now we introduce where the energy comes from, energy generation. Let me repeat a point which we made a couple of days ago, but I want to emphasize it. Stars shine because they are hot. It has absolutely nothing to do with nuclear reactions per se. Stars shine because they are hotter than space. Space is cold. And Kirchhoff's first law of spectroscopy tells us a hot, dense gas will emit a black body spectrum. It will emit a continuous spectrum of radiation whose energy output through the Stefan-Boltzmann law per unit area is proportional to the temperature of the fourth power. So the fact that it is hot, it will simply has to radiate. And the total amount of power it radiates is its total surface area, 4 pi r squared, times temperature to the fourth. This means that stars are losing energy constantly because they're shining, because they're hotter than space. And so as a consequence, in order to stay hot, stars must make up for the energy that they're losing every second from every square centimeter of their surface because they are hot. There's two sources of energy that are available to stars to re restore the amount of heat lost by shining. The first of these is gravitational contraction through the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism that we saw last Thursday. This is where gravitational compression leads to heating. That heating is able to generate enough energy to make up for the losses at the surface, but the star has paid a price by becoming smaller, by shrinking in size, and becoming more tightly gravitationally bound. The way of thinking about gravitational contraction energy is the star is basically tapping its own gravitational potential as a source of energy, much in the same way that a power plant taps a waterfall for hydroelectric power. It's tapping the gravity of the Earth, if you will, from falling water. The other means and the, that works very, very efficiently for very long times is nuclear fusion. In the case of the sun, you take four protons and through a complex nuclear reaction chain, you fuse them into a helium nucleus, liberating a tiny amount of energy because the difference in mass between four protons and a helium is 0.7%. That 0.7% turns into energy via Einstein's E equals mc squared, and I liberate a tremendous amount of energy. A single gram of hydrogen fused into helium would liberate enough energy to lift 64,000 metric tons of rock one kilometer in the sky. It's a tremendous quantity of energy. And the way to think about it is what the star is tapping is nuclear binding energy, the power that binds the nucleus, all the protons and nucleus, protons and neutrons together in the nucleus, is a source of energy. It's what keeps that nucleus bound together. And if the star can tap it by way of nuclear fusion, it has a source of energy that relieves it of having to tap the gravitational source. 
These two mechanisms are in play at all times. The question is whether one or the other is the dominant source. If I turned off any source of energy at all, the star would simply cool off and go out. So if I had a star where there was neither gravitational contraction nor fusion going on, if I could contrive such a situation, and we will in fact meet such objects next week, the star will simply not be able to make up its energy losses and it will cool off and it will slowly but surely go out. Much in the same way that if you heat up a tennis, heat up a, a cannonball in the room, take it out of the forge and set it out there, it will eventually cool to room temperature. It will reach the equilibrium of its surroundings and for a star, that's the cold of deep space. Now, different stars have different mechanisms for either generating energy or transporting it to the surface. For main sequence stars, which are the ones we're going to concern ourselves with for the next couple of days, the main source of energy to a main sequence star is fusion of hydrogen into helium. <coughs> there are two mechanisms that the star can use to, to accomplish this fusion trick of taking four protons, turning them into a helium nucleus, which means that two of those protons are going to turn into neutrons, and liberating, liberating nuclear binding energy. One of these we've already met. It's called the proton-proton chain. It relies on proton-proton collision reactions, and it turns out that it's efficient. It's the most efficient form of fusion at relatively low temperatures, meaning core temperatures below about 18 million Kelvin. Now, I'm going to shorten my shorthand here. The M here will always mean million. You can call that a mega Kelvin if you want, but it's 18 million Kelvin is how you read that. The minimum temperature for fusion is around 10 million Kelvin, but I'm just going to leave that as said and done. So if a star is between 10 and 18 million Kelvin, the primary form of fusion will be via this proton-proton chain reaction. At high temperatures, it turns out a second proton fusion mechanism comes into play. The same goal is here. It's going to take four protons and turn them into a helium nucleus, but it's going to do so in a more complicated fashion by using carbon nuclei as a catalyst to basically move the reaction along. Remember, the trick is I have to somehow make two of those protons turn into neutrons. That's quite a trick. It requires basically weak nuclear reactions to occur. It's kind of a slow process at low temperature, but at high temperature, I can actually exploit the presence of carbon nuclei. How high a temperature? When the core temperature gets above about 18 million Kelvin, the CNO cycle, the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle, as we call it, becomes very, very efficient, and in fact takes over from proton-proton and becomes the dominant way that very, very hot cores produce energy. So we have two ways to pull off this trick of taking four protons and turning them into a helium nucleus, with four hydrogen nuclei into a helium nucleus. We can do it with proton-proton chain at a low temperature, or we can do it with carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle at high temperatures. Just to remind you of the proton-proton chain, I start out with four protons, two protons into a deuteron, producing a positron and electron, and this occurs twice. This is the reaction where one of these protons becomes a neutron. And in the process of becoming a neutron, it spits out a positron to get rid of its excess positive charge, and it spits out a neutrino, which turns out to basically conserve particle spin, but that's just a detail for us. This occurs twice, so I have two times two, or four protons going in. There's another double reaction in which one of those deuteron picks up a fifth and sixth proton and turns into helium-3. The two helium-3s then collide to produce a helium-4 and then spit out those two excess protons. So the net effect is I take four protons and create a helium nucleus, energy in the form of photons, and neutrinos and positrons, which also play a role. The positrons 
basically add to the heating that comes out of this. The neutrinos, for the most part, pass out of the sun. And in fact, they're the way that we know that proton-proton chain is going on in the center of the sun because they, if you will, are the wisps of sooty smoke from the nuclear fires in the center. They pass through the sun, pass into our particle detectors on Earth, and we see the solar neutrinos in the right energies with the right proportions that tell us that nuclear reactions are going on in the core of the sun at exactly the rate necessary to make up for the sun's prodigious luminosity needs. So this is the proton-proton chain. Four protons turns into a helium by way of proton-proton fusion reactions. CNO cycle is a lot more complicated. And don't worry, you don't have to memorize this one. If you were a graduate student, you would, but not here. I just want to get to the bottom line. This is a lot more complicated. We take four protons and convert it into a helium nucleus at the end, a bunch of energy in the form of photons, a bunch of neutrons, neutrinos and positrons, and use carbon-12 as a catalyst. What a catalyst is, is anything that occurs either in a chemical or nuclear reaction that is not consumed by that reaction. So what we have is a carbon starts out, captures a proton, becomes a, a nitrogen-13. Nitrogen-13 is a nitrogen with one too few neutrons, and the excess energy is liberated as a photon because a carbon-13 nucleus weighs less than the combined weight of a carbon and a proton. Nitrogen-13 has too few neutrons, so it's unstable. It radioactively decays into carbon-13. In doing that, it does so by taking one of its protons and turning it into a neutron, which means it spits out a positron and a neutrino. That carbon-13 is stable. It collides with a proton and produces nitrogen-14. Nitrogen-14 weighs less than the combination of carbon-13 and a proton, so that excess matter through E equals mc squared is converted into a photon. Nitrogen-14 is the stable form of nitrogen. It's the form of nitrogen that is a molecule you're breathing right now. However, that nitrogen can also capture a proton. If you add a proton to nitrogen, it becomes oxygen. This is an oxygen with, with eight protons and seven neutrons. It's got one neutron too few. Also, the mass of the oxygen is less than the combined mass of the nitrogen and proton. So again, by E equals mc squared, I get rid of my excess mass as a form of a photon, as energy. This oxygen has one too few neutrons. It's unstable. It decays into a nitrogen-15. And in doing that, basically, a proton turns into a neutron. Oh, look. A proton's turned into a neutron twice. That's what we needed to have happen. And spits out a positron and neutrino. This nitrogen-15 is a stable isotope of nitrogen. It picks up the fourth proton, which breaks it into a carbon-14, carbon-12, excuse me, and a helium-4. So I've taken one, two, three, four protons. I've converted two of those protons into neutrons through these radioactive decays of neutron-deficient isotopes of first nitrogen, then oxygen. So now two, four protons are now two protons plus two neutrons. And I get my carbon-4, I'm sorry, carbon-4, why do I keep saying that? I get my carbon-12 back at the end to go back into the cycle to begin it all over again. So this is why it's a catalyst. It is not consumed by the reaction because it comes out at the end, but I put a carbon plus four protons in, I get a carbon and a helium out plus photons, positrons, and neutrinos. It's a very, very efficient mechanism at very high temperature. The reason why it needs high temperatures is that carbon has 12 protons in its nucleus. The combined electric fields 
electric charge of those six protons strongly resists this proton getting close. And so the temperature has to be high in order for those particles to collide fast enough to overcome the electrical repulsion and get close enough to basically do, the, do their thing, to fuse. Now, this process, as I've implied, is temperature sensitive. The nuclear fusion is very temperature sensitive, and it works in the direction that the higher the core temperature, the hotter, the faster the fusion runs. If I raise the core temperature of the sun, the fusion reactions will go faster. How much faster? It depends upon the method I'm using for my fusion. But fusion makes the core hotter. So as the core gets hotter, hotter core leads to more fusion. So we've got an interesting little problem here. I light off and ignite fusion in the core of a star. It's producing energy, which makes the surroundings hotter, just like lighting a match lights that candle. As it gets hot, the heat allows more fusion to occur. As the heat builds up, the fusion occurs faster. So we have a problem. If more fusion leads to more heat and more heat leads to more fusion, why doesn't it just run away? Why doesn't the star just simply detonate like a hydrogen bomb? Well, the same question might be, why doesn't the candle just simply burst into a fireball? After all, the hotter the candle gets, the more the wax melts, the more the wax melts, the more that's available to form a candle flame. But it achieves an equilibrium. The same thing's going to occur inside of a star. Even though more fusion leads to more heat, there is a way for that to come into equilibrium, so if it goes too fast or too slow, it adjusts itself. And that equilibrium is just like a thermostat. In fact, we call it the hydrostatic thermostat. If fusion goes too fast, if it starts going crazy, then the core is going to heat up because excess heat is going to be dumped into the core. But a core is an ideal gas, which means if I heat it, its pressure goes up. So if I have fusion run out of control, the heat in the core will suddenly begin to rise, but that will also, in addition to raising the fusion rate, also raises the pressure, and it raises the pressure faster. The higher pressure means that pressure now wins against gravity, and what happens? The hydrostatic balance is tipped in the favor of pressure, and the core begins to expand. But as the core expands, it cools. And as it cools, it backs off the fusion reaction. So if fusion gets too hot, the core will simply expand. It will get over pressure until it comes back into hydrostatic equilibrium, but it will come back into equilibrium at a lower core temperature, which means a lower fusion rate. Because both pressure responds by increasing to temperature and fusion increases with temperature, we actually get a stable equilibrium. Let's back it off the other way. What happens if the fusion reactions run too slow? That means the core is cooler than it would be. It's losing heat faster than it's making up. That means that pressure is not big enough to hold off gravity. Gravity will begin to win, and the core will contract. As the core contracts, it compresses and heats, but the increased heat increases the fusion rate, which increases the amount of energy being pumped into the system, and so it achieves a kind of equilibrium where now it's going to resettle into a slightly more compact but higher fusion rate, but exactly enough to make up for its energy needs. So it works just like the thermostat in your home, right? It's on a cold day. What happens? The house is cold. You crank up the thermostat. The thermostat runs the furnace until the thermostat says your temperature is enough, 
and then it turns the furnace off. You don't want to run the furnace 24-7, especially with gas prices the way they are today. But what happens if you change the balance a little bit? What if your furnace is inefficient? Then it has to run faster to achieve equilibrium, to achieve that warm, toasty temperature. What if one of your, your roommates opens up all the windows upstairs? The heat runs out, the furnace has to run at a higher rate to achieve that equilibrium, that set temperature. So if the room gets too hot, the thermostat turns the furnace off and the room cools off. If the room gets too cool, the thermostat turns the furnace on and the two come into balance. It isn't like you turn on the furnace and then have to wait to turn it off because suddenly your house is 120 degrees. It's a self-regulating system. The same thing occurs inside stars, except now the feedback, if you will, to put this system into equilibrium is the interplay between gravity and pressure. And therefore, we call it the hydrostatic thermostat. And it runs very efficiently. And in fact, if no other strange things are going on, a star is able to reach hydrostatic equilibrium and maintain it, even though the sun is converting 600 million metric tons of hydrogen into helium every second, it does not detonate like a helium bomb, hydrogen bomb, and instead, it simply sits and shines at a more or less steady state, slightly getting brighter over time for 10 billion years. Now, that's energy generation. I need to get the energy out. Thermal equilibrium, generically, is simply a statement that heat always flows from the hotter to the cooler. Let's face it. You, you want to get something to be hot, heat's always going to flow into the cooler thing. If you want to make the room cold, or you want to make your drink cold, you dump an ice cube into it. The drink is warmer than the ice cube. Heat flows into the ice cube, causing it to melt, thereby lowering the temperature of your drink. Okay? Heat always flows from the hotter to the cooler, whether you're talking about an ice cube and a Coke or a nuclear reactions occurring in the center of a star. In a star, the direction of heat flow has to be from where the heat's getting generated, that's right down deep in the core, whether that heat is being generated by fusion or by a hot compressed core under Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism. It has to work its way out through the envelope. It has to flow out into the cooler envelope. Heat always flows from the hotter to the cooler until it finally reaches the surface where the surface achieves a certain surface temperature called the photosphere temperature, and now it begins to radiate into the cold of space as starlight. So the way you can think of it is either you have Kelvin-Helmholtz contraction heating the core, or you have nuclear fusion by proton-proton or CNO cycle going down on the core. It's generating energy. That energy has to work its way, be transported to the surface, where once it reaches the surface, it keeps the surface hot to make up for the fact that every second the star is shining away some light by 4 pi r squared sigma t to the fourth, the luminosity-radius-temperature relationship. See how everything in this class that we've talked about so far all hangs together in one gigantic tapestry. It's not just separated facts. How do we do this trick? How do we get energy from the core to the surface? Well, there's three ways, of course. We've just introduced them. I can use radiation, what's called radiative transport, in which I use the energy is carried out by photons. The photons are created in the core, and they work their way out to the surface and eventually shine away into space. I can also use convection. Convection is where the energy is largely carried by the bulk motions of buoyant gas. And we'll see how that works. And finally, I could also have conduction. It's the third mechanism that might be in play, where the energy is carried by the motion of particles, passing the energy along, kind of like a bucket brigade, by conducting it out through the properties of the material itself, much in the same way that sticking a spoon into a candle flame makes the handle hot over time. 
Let's look at how each of these work inside of a star in order. In radiation, the energy is carried by photons. Okay? You start with a photon created in the core in the hot nuclear fusion, or maybe even just if there's no fusion, in a compressed core due to Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism. Turns out that the cores are very hot and very dense, which means that photon doesn't get very far before it hits something. It hits an electron or an atom within one centimeter inside the sun. So even though a photon leaves the candle flame and just streams into the room, inside the sun, that same photon would barely travel the width of your little finger before it would hit something and scatters off in some other direction. It doesn't have to keep going out. It could go in, could go to the left, and go to the right. And so what happens is the scattering occurs. It tries to move the next centimeter and it scatters along. Imagine yourself trying to go through the, the, the oval on a busy time, like right after lunch is, when lunch is on. If you go in the 6 o'clock in the morning, you can walk straight across the oval and never see a thing. But if you went out when everybody's coming out, you can't really run full tilt boogie across the, across the oval. I know some people on bicycles try, and unfortunately sometimes they scatter off pedestrians. So your, the distance you can go before you run into someone gets very short when things get dense. So you take a photon in the middle of the star, maybe one generated right where there's nuclear fusion, and it begins sort of scattering its way out. It kind of bounces around and eventually gets out of the star. It does what's called a random walk, or what statisticians sometimes refer to as a drunk walk. If you work out how long it takes for a photon in the middle of the sun to get out through 700,000 kilometers worth of hydrogen and helium, moving about one centimeter before it hits something, the answer is it takes about a million years to reach the surface. It moves very close in the middle. Obviously, the path length gets a little longer. I decided I wanted this animation to last less than a million years, so I sped it up a little bit. But once it reaches the surface, it runs out of stuff, hits the photosphere, and poof, it's gone. Shines away into space. So this is radiative transport. The energy in the photon is generated here. It bounces its way out. Oh, and along the way, as it runs into atoms and electrons, it gives up a little energy to them and heats the gas. So everything seems to work in its own way. Radiation is a random walk. It takes a million years for a photon to make it from the center outwards. Neutrinos have a scattering cross-section that's larger than, the, than an astronomical unit. And so as a consequence, the neutrinos generated by proton-proton just stream straight out of the sun without ever bouncing off anything on average. That's why I see instantaneously the stream of neutrinos from solar reactions. But the photons generated by the nuclear fusion going on right now, in this instant, will not emerge as surface-radiated photons for another million years on average. So even though there's tremendous nuclear fusion going on, the stuff we're seeing off the surface now is a consequence of photons that left that nucleus a million years ago. So it's a very slow process, but in many cases can be very efficient inside stars. And we'll see examples of this later in the week as we go to different types of stars where radiation transport is important. The other way we can transport energy effectively is through convection. Just like putting my hand out over the candle flame, I can feel the buffeting of the heat rising off the flame, or putting your hand out over a radiator, you can feel the warm air coming off. I can generate energy by basically turning it not into photons, but by heating gas, and that bulk motion carries its hot self up against gravity. The analogy to this is water boiling in a pot. If you want a good example of convective transport of energy, Put a pot of water on to make some pasta. Turn on the flame. The bottom water at the bottom of the hot will get hot, become buoyant, and rise against gravity. 
displacing cold water down. As it sits at the cold top, it gives up its heat, warming the entire pot, but the cold water it's displaced is now near the bottom where it can be heated, become buoyant, rise, displacing water downwards and giving up its heat, which becomes hot, which becomes buoyant and rises, and pretty soon you set up a nice, hot, rolling boil. You've transported energy from the flame touching the base of the pot to the top water at the top of the pot, and after a while, all the water in the pot is hot. And you've done it by setting up this circulation flow known as a convection flow, because you're carrying the heat by picking up a hot parcel, bringing it up to where it's cold, and then that heat in contact with the cold flows out into the surroundings. So I'm transporting the heat from the pot bottom to the top of the pot by bulk motions of the water. Now there is radiation involved, right? If you put, you can see the gas flame, if you have electric, okay, you can see the gas glowing of the electric element. So you can see there's radiation coming off that heat source. But the bottom of the pot is opaque. It cannot radiantly heat the water at the top of the pot because all the photons are bouncing against the bottom of the pot. They can't pass through it. All right, you can use a transparent plastic, or not plastic, Pyrex pot, but that doesn't really count because, in fact, there, there is so little radiation there. The radiation is not efficient. It's more efficiently carried by convection. And so there are situations inside stars where radiation is not effective, where the photons are so trapped they can't really stream out to higher levels. So they stay trapped in a low level and the heat builds up until that little blob of gas near the core is hotter than its surroundings and becomes buoyant and it begins to rise. As it begins to rise, it eventually gets low enough density, woof, all the photons run away. And then as that buoyant hot blob of gas rises away from the core, it displaces cooler gas down towards the core where it gets heated in turn. And believe it or not, inside of stars, you actually can set those stars into a nice hot rolling boil. And we're going to see examples of convective transport in stars as well. Conduction is the third and final mechanism for, for removing heat from a hot source. In this case, heat is passed literally from atom to atom, usually inside of solid or extremely dense materials, where the atoms are in pretty close proximity to each other. Heat will flow from the hotter to the cooler regions. So I click, kick on a flame, and as I hold that in there, eventually over time, the end of the rod gets hot, and it slowly but surely conducts that heat out to the outside. Place a needle in your fingers and place the other end of that needle in a candle flame or a gas flame, I guarantee you, you will not be holding on to that needle for very long before conduction gets hot enough to make the entire needle so hot you can't hold on to it. Putting a spoon in a candle flame, the handle will eventually get hot, especially if you get one of those old nice old copper spoons, because copper's got really good thermal conduction properties. Conduction turns out to only work when things are extremely dense, because you have to have atom by atom in contact. The way to think about it is, in a rod of steel, or something like that, a bar of copper or something, if you heat up the end, the atoms, when they're hotter, start vibrating faster. Remember, heat is internal energy. Heat is internal vibration in a material. So the atoms will start vibrating really hot at the hot end, but the cool end, the vibrations are smaller. So you get the fast vibrations on the hot side, slow vibrations on the cool side. But these atoms feel each other's electric fields. So as these atoms are whipping around, they eventually start affecting the atoms nearby, and they start moving fast. And as they start moving fast, they make their partners move fast. And so you sort of pass the energy along by making the atoms vibrate faster and faster 
by conducting, by passing that energy through vibration of the atoms through the solid material from the hot end to the cool end. That's how conduction works. So it's pretty clear that for conduction to be efficient, you've got to kind of be dense. You've got to have atoms kind of packed close together. Conduction doesn't work so well in the air, right? If I'm looking at it at a flame, a candle flame, I get convection pretty good. I get radiation pretty good. But to get conduction, air doesn't conduct heat very well. I have to stick a solid, dense object into it to make it conduct. So we don't expect, to a first approximation, conduction will be very important in gaseous stars. But what about in the unusually dense circumstances which can occur in things like white dwarfs? Maybe there, conduction will be important. So conduction will play a role, but not in normal stars. They'll play a role in super-dense stars. Now, let me summarize this a little bit. In normal stars, what we find is because they're mostly gaseous, there is a mix of radiation and convection which works to transport energy from the core. Conduction is very inefficient because the density is just too low. It occurs. There is a conduction component, but it just is very, very inefficient. It isn't, it's carrying a fraction of a percent of that. Which is going to dominate, radiation or convection, depends upon where you are in the star and the local conditions. And we'll see examples of that when we talk about the main sequence on Wednesday. White dwarfs are, an ex are a counterexample. These are ultra-dense stars. They have density of 10 to the 5 grams per cc. This high density means that atoms are in close proximity to each other. There's also some other physics going on that enhances this. And conduction, primarily conduction through electrons, is extremely efficient. It's so efficient, in fact, that conduction absolutely dominates energy transport from the hot inner regions to the cooler outer regions, and the white dwarf actually very quickly achieves a uniform temperature throughout. There's no source of energy to make up for those losses in a white dwarf, and so it basically becomes a uniform temperature, nearly solid billiard ball. It's still gaseous, but it's a very, very weird state of matter. We're going to meet those next week. I'll just give you a, a little clue coming up. That's what's going on. So what is really here? Well, here is the final piece of stellar physics, the final piece that I need to describe stars before I can now go on to discuss the stars in detail, their formation and evolution. And that is the idea of thermal equilibrium in stars. Thermal equilibrium generically is simply the statement that heat always flows from the hotter to the cooler. A little sing-song. You can always remember that. What happens in stars? In stars, thermal equilibrium is achieved when the rate of energy generation in the deep core is balanced by the star's ability to transport that energy to the surface to be radiated. Okay? In other words, energy generation is exactly equal to the star's luminosity. So the luminosity determines how much energy the star needs. If energy generation is exactly in balance, and the energy transport is efficient enough to get that energy to the surface to be radiated away, the star will be said to be in thermal equilibrium. Now, this is a very, very delicate balance. If it turns out that I make more energy than my luminosity needs, the excess energy will get dumped into internal heat. That internal heat will cause the star to begin to expand. So relaxing thermal equilibrium by making more energy than I can transport to the surface and radiate, the energy doesn't vanish. It's got to go somewhere. And where it goes is it goes into work. It goes into pressure. It goes into heating. It makes the star swell up and expand. 
On the other hand, if I tip the balance in the other direction, such that I make less energy than my luminosity requirements, the star will actually begin to contract. It will actually begin to shrink because now it will have less heat going into it to make up for its losses. Its losses will exceed its income and it will begin to have a negative balance. And that negative balance means less internal heat. Less internal heat means less internal pressure. Less internal pressure means gravity wins and the star will begin to contract. Thermal, evolution, thermal equilibrium, like hydrostatic equilibrium, plays a vital role in determining the evolution of stars. And now that we have all the pieces, we're ready to see that story with first asking the question tomorrow, how do stars form? All right, your homeworks uh, will be up on the table here in front and this other front table ahead here. <laughs>